Hello everyone and welcome to today's episode of the Unfounded Podcast. This episode is the second and final episode of the series on Russia and Ukraine. In the last episode, we sort of ended on talking about how the sovereignty of nations around Russia is much more protected if they are a NATO country. And in this episode, we're kicking off by talking about how countries who are surrounding Russia must condemn Russia, but at the same time, maintain economic relations because they get so many resources from the country. We're also then going to talk about how this interaction has affected Australia and the rest of the world, because... I did not realize how much an incident that seems very politically motivated all the way in Russia and Ukraine would affect the common man in Australia. So I think this episode is a little bit more relevant to us and our day-to-day lives. And Andrea um, gave a little bit more insight into things other than petrol that are likely to be affected um, due to the invasion. So I hope you guys enjoy listening and see you on the other side. Given how much other countries, especially in the European Union, tend to rely on Russia's oil, and given all of these sort of tensions that are present in that area at the moment, how do these countries make sure that they're condemning Russia, um, but still sort of maintaining their economic interests, especially when there are so many layers of complexity involved in the dynamic that you just described? That's a very interesting question, Mega. It's, look, um, international politics, as all students know, and um, international politics is, and politics in general, is um, very interesting, but also a very strange affair in, in the sense that morality and interests sit side by side in a sort of quite in a sort of very awkward manner <laughs> and and and, um, and can be can be otherwise because even ourselves as normal citizens as normal person sometimes we say oh we should do this we should do that we should aim for this we should aim for that and in reality as human beings um even when we want to be 100% moral even when we want to be 100% conscientious, we fail the test oftentimes. I do fail it uh, several times myself. So it, it's it's not, and states, states and governments, governments uh, do do the same, sad, sadly. So the point here, though, it's it's not so much of morality, perhaps of taking the moral high ground to some extent, because. What we're really talking about in terms of in terms of uh, NATO countries, European countries, is that they've imposed sanctions on uh, on Russia to try to, um, if you like, to try to um, compel Russia to change uh, its course of actions. Of course, sanctions. If they work, they don't work um, in the short terms. Or let me rephrase myself. Before the impact of um, sanctions is felt, it takes time. Mm -hmm. And so here we're talking about six rounds of pretty deep sanctions that have been imposed on Russia, 
Of course, Russia will take countermeasures, will try to diversify its own trade and so on and so forth, but this is not the nature of your question. What I'm simply trying to say is these, these measures were imposed to um, undermine the Russian ability to conduct war mm -hmm. by undermining its own economy. So to put it differently, to um, over time to reduce Russia's ability to fund, finance its war against Ukraine. Yeah. And some of the sanctions are also really go um, hit Russia hard in terms of preventing Russia from importing vital technology from, from the West to build its own um, arms or rather to, if you like, certain weapon system re require guidance technology and so on and so forth. And this type of technology is oftentimes um, acquired from, from the West. And, and, and so it's, it's a sense, it's a way of engaging, um, if you like, not fighting a war against Russia directly, but try to undermine it by economic and financial means. Mm. However, in saying so, and of course, I think what your questions might also get at is, well, European nations and United States have also asked other countries around the world to punish Russia. Some countries are, have said, no, thank you. And I'm thinking of a country that is quite dear to me, particularly for my own research interests and because I, I tend to travel to that country uh, whenever I can, which is India. India has clearly made the point that um, we are not willing to do so for a number of reasons. Clearly, the key point is the 70% of Indian military hardware is still of Russian origin. So, of course, the Indian government is very, is very um, careful to, to do so. And that's the reason why, actually, India has been saying, well, um, we won't be doing that. And in fact, it's in our national interest to... Um, actually buy Russian oil at discounted price. <laughs> and I'm telling you the example of India because in a sense, uh, at distance, India and the Europeans and the United States have been talking to each other and criticizing each other, even when they're collaborating on a number of many other issues, because the Indians are saying, well, look at you. You are taking the more high moral high ground, telling everyone that they should be adopting sanctions against or imposing sanctions on, on Russia. But look at you, Italy, look at you, Germany, you're still importing significant amount of gas from, from Russia. And so why sanctions on, 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 on Russia and you stop buying Russian gas? Because if you did so, you would really harm Russia quite uh, quite significantly. Yeah. yeah. Um, the Europeans would say, "Well, um, you India, why actually you don't you do, you don't do that because because it's also in your interests to to um, uphold certain certain broad principles um, uh, in the international system." So it's a long story, but to cut the long story short, as far as the Europeans are concerned, is the fact that um, they cannot 
uh, weave of um, Russian gas turn the tap off in, uh, if you like, in, uh, in no time. So they've been diversifying their sources of energy. By the end of the year, countries like Italy and, uh, and uh, Germany will have acquired, will be acquiring gas from other sources. They've been signing agreements with other countries like Algeria, as far as Italy is concerned. And so it's, it's a long process. And the reason why um, they've been reluctant to impose this type of sanctions is because um, weaning them, themselves of Russian gas will also undermine their own economies. Yeah. And so if you are entering a sort of, um, how to put it, if it's a long war that we are looking uh, at, if it's a war of attrition and the West needs to support Ukraine, uh, well, the winning of Russian gas will take time. Uh, having said that, of course, Putin has been uh, turning the screw on uh, these countries because has already started reducing step by step the quantity of oil and uh, and gas that Russia has been selling to um to the European Union mm -hmm. so it's a question of of interest i don't think it's really a question of morality per se because in a sense the europeans have said well we will be adopting sanctions against russia as an instrument of the of policy when perhaps they've been accused of being hypocritical for instance by india is uh, when they say, well, you, India, you should be doing the same. But in reality, um, the Europeans are still, for uh, reasons of national interest and economic interest, buying oil uh, from, uh, from, from, from Russia. Yeah. What the Europeans are saying to India, well, at least you, you could adopt some sort of sanctions to show solidarity. But that's beyond the scope. But I hope that by taking the sort of this winding road, winding road, I've been able to to give you a sense of <clears throat> what the problems are in this particular aspect of the uh, Russian, Ukraine, European, and American um, equation. Yeah, definitely. I think that was a really good summary of how the national interests of all of these different countries differ and how they're sort of um, impacting the relationship that they're going to pursue with Russia moving forward. And I think that gives us a really good opportunity to sort of talk about um, the relationship between Australia and Russia and Australia and Ukraine. So most of the people, I think my age and in the general middle class, have been impacted by this sort of, by the crisis that happened just through petrol prices. Like it's a very genuine issue that a lot of people have had where they've just been like the petrol prices are so high they've become so unaffordable due to this crisis that's happening so far away from us and i think it would be interesting to hear your insight on the sort of ongoing relationship that australia is likely to have with russia and ukraine and how that's likely to impact things like petrol prices or things that people in the middle class regularly utilize uh, thanks, Mega. Yes, that's that's it, it's even uh, one of the most important questions for for not simply for Australia but for many other countries around the world. 
because it's fair to say that um, uh, energy prices were already increasing before the war uh, in Ukraine. Um, also, the price of foodstuff was already increasing before the war in Ukraine. I could cite one reasons for it, particularly for COVID, of course, had a role to play in the unfolding of this story. Um, supply bottlenecks and so on and so forth, mm -hmm. pushed up prices, um, also prices of um, primary uh, resources. Of course, to produce foodstuff are also need, for instance, if prices of oil go up, uh, there will be uh, repercussions on the um, on food prices as well, because of course, farmers use machinery, they need to uh, buy petrol to, to um, get their tractors, lorries working and so on and so forth. So it's, it's a chain. So to cut a long story short, prices of foodstuff as well as oil and other and other resources were already uh, rising before the 24th of uh, February, which is the day in which Russia decided to invade invade Ukraine. But of course, the, the current war in Ukraine has exacerbated all these problems because now, of course, the imposition of, of sanctions on, on Russia, particularly on um, uh, oil, um, as, as, as contributed to, to um, oil prices going up. But more more problematically is the issue of, of grains like, like wheat. Because Ukraine um, exports 10% of the total uh, global production of wheat. Wow. Also, Ukraine exports um, significant amounts of other um, agricultural uh, uh, products and, um, and, 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 and so, but remaining, staying with the wheat, the risk is that um, the, current, the, current, the current stock of, of um, Ukrainian wheat cannot uh, get out of the country because normally they would get out um, by by sea by big um, uh, container ships mm. these are prevented from from doing so for various reasons um, now what European countries are considering is to and to some extent they've started doing that is to try to um, ship this wheat out by land through Eastern Europe but to give you <laughs> to give you an example to replace a container ship full of wheat and replace that cargo uh, with the same amount of wheat basically shipped through through trains, you would need several, a constant number of trains every day for a number of days to ship out of Ukraine that very same amount. So it's a very huge logistical endeavor and then you'll end up with bottlenecks in a number of 
EU ports like Constanza in uh, in in Romania, and 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 so it's to cut the long story short, by train only a small amount of wheat would be able to get out of of Ukraine. A small amount of wheat has already also come out through uh, Russia. Russia has been stealing. <laughs> um, Ukrainian wheat and exporting it, particularly to countries like Syria or and Egypt, who have a close relationship with Russia. But more to the point, uh, the, the risk, the current risk is that the current production in stock won't be able to be exported in full, so it will rot in uh, in Ukrainian silos, and the new uh, harvest which which the harvesting in Ukraine will happen in, in the next weeks, apart from the amount that from the fact that the harvest will be reduced because of the war in the east and the east of Ukraine is 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 produces wheat. But even the 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 wheat that will be produced um, in the West, unless measures are taken, even the new the new wheat will find it difficult to be to be sold and shipped mm. outside. And so adding to that, there there's also the possibility that the Soviet Union, uh, sorry, Russia will uh, we will play hardball with its own uh, wheat, which is to use it as 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 a strategic tool to apply pressure and therefore by uh, reducing the amount of wheat that Russia would be making available to um, a number of countries. So we're really faced with potential serious problems for a number of developing countries who rely significantly on um, wheat exported from Ukraine and from Russia. So some experts are actually forecasting serious um, price hikes with regard to flour, bread, pasta, which will have an impact worldwide. But certain countries will weather the storm bet better. Others will or are at risk of suffering serious shortages and even famine. So unless, of course, measures are taken. I was reading the Wall Street Journal yesterday, as I do every day. And of course, the possibility of the United Nations to run a, how to describe it, a coalition of the willing with military um, ships escorting uh, these sort of big cargoes into the, uh, the Black Sea to get um, Ukrainian wheat and to then ship it out of Ukraine under the aegis of the United Nations is an option that's been uh, considered, mm -hmm. it's been talked about for a while. But of course, now we have to see whether it's indeed going to be in, uh, implemented. Of course, the risk is that Russia will retaliate militarily. And so uh, that's the reason why it's a measure that's been considered, but at the moment is 
progressing at a glacial pace if it's progressing at all. Right. So just really quickly, um, will Australia be one of those countries, do you think, that's likely to weather the storm? I think so, because um, Australia is... Um, Australia is is Australia is many things. Let me put it that way. But of course, one of the things that Australia does is Australia is a producer of foodstuff. It's always been a significant producer of foodstuff. So presumably, Australia could suffer some uh, bottlenecks um, next year. But I think that perhaps uh, farmers are already um, producing more um or if you producing potentially more wheat to to face this uh, incoming crisis i mean um it, this is the time to start to start um sowing wheat seeds so i'm not uh, familiar with the situation on on the ground but it's not impossible to to um to imagine that um, a greater number of Australian farmland has actually been uh, is being is going to be used to to plant to sow uh, wheat seeds more than uh, used to be the case before. Right. I think Australia would be, by and large, reasonably, uh, if not entirely self-sufficient, but certainly mostly self-sufficient in terms of wheat. Um, and so I think Australia would be, in fact, uh, much better able to weather the storm than other countries in Australia's region and further afield. Mm -hmm. That I was so happy as soon as you mentioned the concept of self-sufficiency, because that was going to be my next and final question for you today. And that's this sense of during COVID and, of course, as, as well as when... Um, other crises in the world sort of arise, including this one, there is a question of self-sufficiency within nations. And I kind of want to just end off on your thoughts on how this crisis between these two countries has prompted the reconsideration of self-sufficiency worldwide. Another interesting question that I'm very glad to, to answer. Look, this is another topical question because COVID to some extent um, one of the legacies of COVID is the idea that, um, that under certain circumstances, um, it's important to be able to produce uh, its own supply of medicines, medical appliances, and um, medical machinery. With, um, for a number of years, we have been uh, lucky enough um, and I think your generation, and to some extent mine, although I'm older and therefore I've, I've been aware, um, I've experienced uh, situations where globalization was not as entrenched and as significant as it is nowadays. But I think um, when I say this, is not to attach blame to, to anyone. But I think your generation and perhaps the um, the generation of a number of your listeners are, are, have taken for granted over the past 20, 30 years that actually um, extensive globalization is is here to stay and uh, we have taken it for, for granted. 
in reality, what COVID has taught us is the fact that um, in times of acute and extreme need, uh, countries need to have to be able to produce at least uh, in small quantity to have the capacity to produce certain items. And so that's something that has been creeping into the um, political debates and the policy debates in a number of countries. So it, it's the Ukrainian crisis, in a sense, has been building, building on this and, and exacerbating this, this problem because now countries are learning the lessons that, of course, if sanctions are imposed on a number of countries, if indeed countries are decoupling economically from each other, who's to say that uh, we are next online and who's to say that we're not, we're not going to be able to um, have access to certain um, products or produce? For instance, in a, in a number of uh, developing countries in Africa over the past two decades, the emphasis was not on producing wheat, but other, rather producing other agricultural foodstuff because in any case, the price of wheat was low because, of course, there was plenty of wheat. There was no impediment to importing and exporting wheat. And therefore, they, if you like, specialized on other productions. The problem is that uh, in time of need and in time of crisis, actually, it's important that countries rich and poor actually are able to produce at least a certain modicum amount of wheat. For instance, Italy, my own country of origin, was never been self-sufficient in terms of wheat. But during the Cold War, produced enough wheat for strategic reasons as well uh, to, to support itself in the main. Of course, would always have to to import uh, some amount of wheat, but nonetheless, it would have at least a significant, significant minimal productions to ensure that in times of need, the country would be able to, to, to fend off any potential crisis. Now, over the past 20 years, Italy has been producing less wheat. And so, of course, nowadays, um, nowadays the situation could be could be um, more problematic, although not dire. And mm -hmm. so to come back to your question and to wrap it, wrap it up, um, the, other, the other issue is to what extent globalization as we knew it is to, um, to remain in place. Um, as the world becomes more conflictual, as countries are decoupling from each other, um the what we have been taking for granted uh is being called into question and uh, and therefore moving forward countries will try to be um as self-sufficient as possible or as self-sufficient as realistically possible and of course that will have a cost because if we, all of us, do that in any significant way and we trade less between different countries, I think the end result will be that we're all going to be uh, worse off than we used to be before. 
and and so and so this is the current trend trend of course can always be reverted but it's difficult for me to see uh, that happening in the current uh, current context even because even in the asia pacific with china playing an increasingly uh, assertive role a number of countries including australia has been diversifying uh, its own uh, trade away from china as much as realistically possible and so yes these lessons are learned and and of course while we might gain in certain respects would be worse off in others thank you so much andrea that hopefully we learn in the you know coming few decades to strike a balance between self-sufficiency and globalization i think that would be the most ideal circumstance but in the meantime it will be interesting to kind of see how different countries respond to this demand for self-sufficiency with the like you said the, the sort of decoupling and um continued conflicts that are arising that we see arising and thank you so much for being on the podcast that was a really really valuable insight i think and i think a lot of what you said hasn't necessarily been um exposed to me at least on the platforms that i've been seeing um news related to russia and ukraine so that was really amazing and thank you so much for coming on my pleasure meg it was pleasure uh, it was a pleasure to be on your program and it was a pleasure to talk to you as well Thank you so much. Hopefully we talk again soon. Bye. Bye. Bye, Mega. So that's the episode, guys. In the first episode, we predominantly covered why Russia invaded Ukraine, their motivations and how that's impacted a lot of the countries surrounding Russia. We also spoke about what NATO countries are and how the sovereignty of countries surrounding Russia is sort of dependent at this stage upon whether they are a part of NATO or not. In this episode, we spoke a little bit more about the relationships that countries are likely to have to maintain even though they would want to ideally condemn Russia because Russia has a lot of resources that other countries require and how this sort of prompted considerations of balancing self-sufficiency with globalization just like COVID did. I hope you guys enjoyed that episode. Please make sure to follow us on Instagram and your favorite podcast listening app and we'll see you next time. Bye.